Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW. Thank you for checking out the Top Docs radio show. We've got an interesting one for you this week. Have you ever heard of a fecal transplant? That's right, where they transplant fecal material from one person to another, or poop, to treat what can be a very difficult infection caused by an organism called Clostridium difficile, or C. difficile for short. I had a chance to sit down with Dr. David Dickensheets, who is an infectious disease specialist with Infectious Disease Services of Georgia, in his coming office recently. He shared some great information about what is one of the leading causes of infection in hospitals, particularly deadly for the elderly population, and obviously many of those people constitute the majority of patients who end up going to the hospital to begin with. And Dr. Dickensheets shared how they go about diagnosing this problem and the various means of treating it, including including, as we discussed, fecal transplant. Here's Dr. Dickensheets talking about it. Check it out. I would consider this to be a hot topic. It seems to get the lay public uh, interest. You know, what's the best way to get normal bacteria into your system? You know, well, someone came up with the idea that if you can get stool to be donated by healthy volunteers, and of course process the stool so there's no chance of any transmission of any infection, and package it, if you will, in a way that's deliverable, instill it into the person's intestine that has the C. diff. There's different ways you can do that. You, know, you can place it through a tube into the colon, like through a colonoscopy tube. Mm -hmm. uh, you could place a tube into the stomach and uh, put this material into the stomach. In recent years, this was done kind of informally, if you will, or kind of ad hoc at, at centers, but there are some companies now that are realizing a uh, potential market here and coming up with products that the FDA is allowing to come to market. And there are some people think this is going to be the preferred treatment in the not too distant future, that it makes a lot of sense biologically to treat the infection this way. And, uh, and it is being done now at some centers. Personally, I haven't had to do it. If you persist with the other antibiotics, you can frequently get good outcomes. But there certainly seem to be patients that need something like this. And we're all excited about how, uh, how, how this is going to turn out in the next few years. Are you as intrigued as I was? Stick around. We got the full interview with Dr. David Dickensheets coming up next. And good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us on the Top Docs Radio Show. I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to a physician that we've known for a while through our practice, Dr. David Dickensheets. His office is located in Cumming, Georgia, and we were talking about an organism called Clostridium difficile. And now this this bug is one that causes severe illness in a lot of people out there, particularly when they go to the hospital. I was looking at some statistics on the Center for Disease Control talking about C. difficile, and it described it as approximately 29,000 patients died within 30 days of initial diagnosis of C. difficile. Of those, 15,000 deaths were estimated to be directly attributable to C. difficile infections, making it very important cause of infectious disease death in the United States. More than 80% of the deaths associated with C. difficile occurred among Americans age 65 or older. And of course, many of those populations are the ones that end up going into the hospital. Treating it and dealing with this problem of C. difficile costs hospitals in the U.S. up to $4.8 billion 
dollars a year in excess health care costs trying to take care of it. A new study found that one out of every five patients with a health care associated C. difficile infection experienced a recurrence of the infection. And one out of nine age 65 or older with a health care associated C. difficile infection died within 30 days of diagnosis. Clearly, it's a big problem and the, the hospitals are certainly working very hard to make sure that they try to fight this effectively with hand washing procedures and cleaning procedures and products that they use within the hospital to uh, try to manage this problem and mitigate the effect on the patients out there. Without further ado, I'll jump over and turn it over to uh, Dr. Dickensheets when I sat down with him a couple days ago. Check it out. Dr. David Dickensheets joins me from Infectious Disease Services of Georgia and I've known Dr. Dickensheets for a number of years. Actually, our practices collaborate from time to time. And Dr. Dickensheets, I appreciate you taking some time out of the day to sit down with me today. Thank you, CW. I'm very pleased to be able to do this. And so for the folks who aren't familiar with you and your practice, share with the the audience, how did you get into medicine and ultimately select infectious disease as your chosen specialty? I was always interested in the sciences and biological sciences in high school and college. And it led to medical school as a uh, uh, as a nice way to incorporate that interest into routine work position and, and avocation and career. My father was a physician, so being a doctor wasn't such a odd idea, and I kind of, I think, fit pretty comfortably into it. Infectious disease wasn't initially what I was interested in. Other aspects of internal medicine were of interest, but I, I did an internship at a public health service hospital in San Francisco. And I remember my first day there, they, my four cases included um, malaria, some another far-flung parasite disease, <laughs> and even leprosy, believe it or not, in a patient. And, and from there, there was a big focus on infectious disease at that hospital, and it just kind of kept with me through the rest of my training and uh, ultimately completed a fellowship in infectious disease at Brown University in, in Rhode Island and went on to a career in private practice of infectious so throughout your whole career, basically, you've been dedicated to the specialty, sounds like. That's correct. I graduated from medical school in 1980, and that internship I mentioned was in 1980 and 1981, and uh, did my internal medicine training, and then uh, I've been practicing in nearly 30 years now in infectious disease. Now that you've been a part of the specialty for so long, and clearly you're seeing some people that are in serious situations from a variety of causes, different types of infections threatening them, either whether they're limb or their life or both, what would you say for you as a practicing infectious disease physician all this time, what would you say is the most rewarding thing for you about what you're doing? It's sort of interesting. Uh, a lot of people get into infectious disease because we can treat infections successfully. So you see very sick patients, and they get better. And you don't always see that in other areas of, of medicine. So you see uh, ill patients who frankly think they may be dying of something. And, 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 and what with antibiotics and other medicines we have, we can cure so many things. So it's, it's just very gratifying to see severe infections get better. And if I may add, when I did my internship in 1980 and 81, this was around the time that HIV infection was discovered. And of course, early in that epidemic, we had no treatment. So that's an example where we went from having a disease where there was no treatment and very poor outcomes to patients doing extremely well now. You know, I had an opportunity, speaking of HIV, 
HIV. There's a organization here locally in the Atlanta area that's actually developing a vaccine now for HIV focused on the, the strain that affects the United States and Europe. And then from there, they're going to branch into a vaccine for the, I guess, the African strain. But interesting that they're closing in on it. It's still a few years away, but it's showing some promise, apparently. And it's very exciting. And so the thing that we were going to talk about today was C. difficile. As I've been a part of the wound practice and had an opportunity since that time, the last five, six years, to be interfacing with infectious disease physicians, one of the infectious organisms that have come up from time to time as I've met the infectious disease specialist is C. difficile. And it's a fairly significant problem. I, I remember when I worked in the hospital in uh, the intensive care unit, seeing some patients that were dealing with it, and it certainly can be quite devastating to their progress. So introduce folks to what we're talking about when we talk about the C. difficile organism and where we come across it and, and what it means for our patients. We'll get into how we go about treating it. I think the best way to talk about the subject is a little bit historically. In the 1970s, uh, it was realized that patients would get this severe diarrhea uh, related to antibiotics primarily that was noted early on. And then they even did these scoping sigmoidoscopy procedures and looked into the colon and sigmoid and saw peculiar looking ulcerations and abnormalities, but didn't know the cause of it. Didn't know what bacteria, if a bacteria caused it. And it took another 10 years or so before it was discovered that a bacteria was the cause of these ulcerations and colitis symptoms. And eventually it was discovered to be a bacteria called Clostridium diffus. Clostridium is a group of bacteria that can cause other infections as well, but this one species called Clostridium difficile has been identified as, as a bacteria that seems to have a unique ability to really inflame the colon and cause the colitis. And unfortunately, this problem has gotten worse from the 1980s until right now it's the number one most common hospital-acquired infection, which we call nosocomial infection, and it's also the most serious nosocomial infection infection because patients can get very ill and there can even be deaths from this infection. Now, is it one of those, from what I understand, that when you talk about how infectious a particular organism is, is it one of those that really doesn't take very many of the organisms to be passed from one individual to the next to actually cause a significant infection? Is that kind of what we're talking about? It, it's really easy to contract. We're still learning about biology and ecology of the organism, but it has the ability to produce what we call spores, which are, if you will, dried or kind of quiescent forms of the bacteria that can remain dormant on environmental surfaces, such as in the hospital and elsewhere. And you're right, if these are ingested or taken orally somehow from contaminated hand or, or food or whatever. And then that's required to get the infection. But people can acquire those spores or the bacteria and not be sick. You need other things to have happen to cause you to be sick. I see. So as we were talking early on in the conversation about it, it was thought, I guess, that it had some sort of know, secondary causation after someone was taking antibiotics. Was that a situation where when we're taking antibiotics, it was killing off some of the normal flora that's in our bowel and then making it more susceptible to an infection? Is that what you're saying? Some more of a compromised person of some level is one that's probably going to be sick with the C. difficile or is it something else? No, our thinking seems to still be correct in that there is a disturbance of the intestine and the current phrase for that is the microbiota which is a term meaning the normal bacteria of the intestine and in this case we're talking about the colon but there's some disturbance of the microbiota of the colon and the most common disturbance is antibiotics okay so you can take pretty much 
any antibiotic, and it quickly, within a few days, changes the normal bacteria of our intestine. And this seems to allow the Clostridium difficile, if it happens to be there, to get a foothold and cause the symptoms of colitis. Exactly how does that? We don't know, but it's the strong association with antibiotics, if there's other intestinal abnormalities, for example, if you get chemotherapy or you've had recent abdominal surgery or maybe have a history of inflammatory bowel disease where the microbiota might be disturbed for other reasons, also seems to be risk factors for this. We've been talking with Dr. David Dickensheets of Infectious Disease Services of Georgia, learning about Clostridium difficile, and as Dr. Dickensheets was talking about, it's one that can certainly lead to some very significant challenges, particularly for a patient who's already hospitalized for some other issue, causing significant inflammation of the bowel and severe diarrhea, and, and then obviously leading to dehydration. And can you get septic from it? Where can it get into the bloodstream? Well, it, it doesn't get into the bloodstream, but you are septic in the sense there's low blood pressure, there's abnormalities of kidney blood tests commonly. Patients can be in ICU, and uh, we can talk about treatment a little bit later. But yes, patients can be very, very ill just from the severe inflammation of the intestine. For the person who's not in the hospital at the time that they contract the disease, I mean, at what point does one need to seek out help from, say, going to the doctor or a hospital? I mean, obviously, in the course of your life, you'll end up having diarrhea, for example, diarrhea-type symptoms and, and that sort of thing. Is this one of those things where once the infection takes hold, then clearly it's it's obvious that you've got a significant problem that's going to drive you to the hospital? Or are there things that you need to think about early on in a situation like that that might need to seek out care? Right. Well, fortunately, the uh, severity of the disease is quite variable, and it's not always severe. So an otherwise healthy person, young, who gets this infection, it, it might be mild, it might be present for days or even a week or more. And it can occur in people who haven't been in the hospital and even on antibiotics. It's uh, it's on the list of things that can be acquired with, with travel, for example, or sometimes contaminated food items. And the disease might not be bad enough to put someone in the hospital, it does require a specific test of the stool, however, to prove it. There's no blood test, and and it's really hard to uh, diagnose it just clinically. It requires a stool test done to demonstrate the presence of the C. diff or the toxin. That now, once we get into that phase, once we've done the, the stool test that you're talking about, and it's determined that, yes, this is, is in fact C. difficile that we're dealing with, what are we going to do to treat it? Treatment requires, if you can, to stop any antibiotic or other factor going on that's messing up that microbiota I talked about. So if someone's on ampicillin for a sore throat or a penicillin or something for a uh, respiratory infection, if you can, you make that antibiotic as brief as possible. There are specific antibiotics, uh, strange as it seems, that do treat C. diff. There's only a few, but we prescribe a specific alternative antibiotic that seems to inhibit the growth of, of the C. diff bacteria in the intestine. And uh, and then uh, over time, it's it's slow. It can be three, four, or five days or a week the uh, infection seems to go away. Now, how does that complicate things for you when you're following a patient who's, say, in the hospital? Maybe they've had surgery or maybe they're in for some sort of infection, soft tissue or bony, whatever the case may be, elsewhere that is problematic and is actually part of why they're there, and now you're having to stop antibiotics to treat the C. difficile. How does that kind of make a balancing act for you to deal yeah, with? It really is a balancing act. That's exactly right. What we do, there are some infections, obviously, if you're really sick and in the hospital, you just can't stop the antibiotics. So we, we kind of over time have perhaps learned what antibiotics are least likely to contribute to the, to the C. diff problem. So we try to switch to that antibiotic. And 
you can treat C. diff on antibiotics with, with the anti-C. diff antibiotics. In other words, do two antibiotics at the same time, one for your primary infection, one for the C. diff. And it will just take a little longer to get better, and the response may be slower. And then you just have to extend the treatment for the C. diff a little bit longer once, once you are able to come antibiotic for the infection. You were mentioning the fact that there is a relatively innovative treatment available nowadays that is being employed in some cases. You want to talk about that? I would consider this to be a hot topic. It seems to get the late public uh, interest. You know, what's the best way to get normal bacteria into your system? You know, well, someone came up with the idea that if you can get stool to be donated by healthy volunteers and, of course, process the stool so there's no chance of any transmission of any infection and package it, if you will, in a way that's deliverable, instill it into the person's intestine and it has the C. diff. There's different ways you can do that. Uh, you can place it through a tube into the colon, like through a colonoscopy tube. Mm -hmm. uh, you could place a tube into the stomach and uh, put this material into the stomach. In recent years, this was done kind of informally, if you will, or kind of ad hoc at, at centers, but there are some companies now that are realizing a uh, potential market here and coming up with products that the FDA is allowing to come to market. And there are some people think this is going to be the preferred treatment in the not-too-distant future, that it makes a lot of sense biologically to treat the infection this way. And, uh, and it is being done now at some centers. Personally, I haven't had to do it. If you persist with the other antibiotics, you can frequently get good outcomes. But there certainly seem to be patients that need something like this. And we're all excited about how, uh, how, how this is going to turn out in the next few years. I think I'm opting for the yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, what is the normal microbiota? You know, there's probably hundreds of different types of bacteria and viruses and whatnot in our intestine. So it's a little bit of oversimplification to say if I just take a certain probiotic pill, or a, a healthy supplement, it's going to fix everything. It, it's probably going to help a little bit. But there's so many aspects of our uh, intestine normal flora that have to be kind of reconstituted. That's what they're working on. What, what, what are the key requirements to getting our intestinal bacteria back to normal? And they may come up with some product that seems to do the trick. When it comes to a case where you're having to think about a fecal transplant, at what point do you pull the trigger on going down that path? I mean, how long are you, are you sure. dealing with it, fighting it with antibiotics that would make you think, geez, this is something that we might need to consider? Part of the problem with C. diff, one of the other nasty aspects of it, it can be recurrent. It's said that that 30% of people who get C. diff colitis will relapse. In other words, they are treated for the usual two-week or so course of treatment. They're off the antibiotics that we were just talking about, and they're fine, but a week or two later, they just tend to get sick again with the same thing. So there is recurrent C. diff. And probably these are the people who are a candidate for the fecal transplant because the people who relapse once are also prone to relapse a second or third time. So that, that's the current population that would be receiving this. So for the folks who aren't hospitalized, are there measures, I mean, obviously good hand washing, I would imagine, is one of the, probably the key things that they can do to protect themselves. But as far as food preparation, food handling, or traveling considerations, if they're eating out some sort of travel type environment, do you have advice for folks to avoid it from an environmental perspective? And then we can talk about what we can do about it in the hospital. If someone has the infection, I, I think, you know, obviously they're going to kind of adjust their diet to a more palatable or easily digestible diet. So that's generally called a low residue diet where they absorbed and 
you actually avoid some of the things you thought to be good. So you avoid the high fiber, the fresh vegetables, the salad bar sort of things, take cooked food items, really digestible foods. There's no other special things that need to be avoided. Generally, we prescribe either a medicine called metronidazole, the brand name of that is Flagyl, and there is also another antibiotic called vancomycin that's prescribed. There's a third called Difficid. Dr. David Dickensheets of Infectious Disease Services of Georgia has been joining me, and we're talking about what is, as he was talking about earlier on in our conversation, a fairly common problem, particularly for patients who are in the hospital. And as it relates to the hospital environment, are there things that, that we're finding that we can do? I mean, clearly hand-washing amongst our, our providers being one of those big things, but are there other measures that we're taking that we're making some headway with reducing infections like this? The Clostridium difficile hospital-acquired infection gets a lot of attention from agencies that oversee uh, hospitals and regulate them and approve them and whatnot. So every hospital has a close monitoring system and tallying of the cases that occur, number one. It is probably going to be something that is available to the public to review at various websites as to the number of instances of any hospital. Mm -hmm. So Hospitals are real motivated to make sure this doesn't happen. So there's more intensive hand cleaning. We tend to think hand washing with soap and water and physically washing the hands it does a better job in this instance than the alcohol-based hand gels. The alcohol-based hand gels are very good for nearly everything else, but for the C. diff, we encourage standard hand washing. There are barrier and gown measures put into effect as soon as a patient is identified with this. The other thing that's focus of late is what's called antibiotic stewardship programs. Hospitals are encouraged to have practices in effect that has an ongoing review of antibiotics being used in the hospital to try to limit the total use of antibiotics as well as streamline antibiotics to appropriate use. The thinking is over time with the process and effect like this, there would be less antibiotic usage and less C. difficile illness. I know I've caught you in the middle of your practice day, Dr. Dickensheets. Do you have some final thoughts or words of advice for folks around our topic today? The other interesting thing is we do have rapid diagnostic tests that can detect this infection in the stool fairly quickly. And with the turnaround time, it used to be many days. Now there's some labs that can do it with, within a day. It requires a, a stool exam to be tested. And so if someone has a, a persistent diarrhea problem. They need to not only be checked for some of the usual things you might think of, but we need to add C. diff to the list to be checked. Basically, anyone that has diarrhea for any reason in the hospital or out of the hospital. So as a patient or loved one who's dealing with an issue like this and obviously being able to advocate for themselves and say, hey, are we testing for that? It would be a good idea. And when it comes to trying to select an infectious disease physician, do you have some advice on questions they should ask that would be useful to kind of determine is this the best provider for me? It'd be like other specialties. You want someone experienced who's had a long career with infectious disease, uh, having some good training in the past, maybe a variety of tra training. Most infectious disease practitioners have a mixed practice of hospital and office base, and I think that's best because it allows for a broad experience of the doctor to keep tabs on all the various uh, infections. Well, I really appreciate you, Dr. Dickensheet's taking some time. If you need some more information about the practice, do you have a website that folks can go to yeah, to yeah. Uh, get some information yeah, about you? We certainly do. It's idsga.com. And you're located here in the coming Georgia area. Do you have any other offices, locations besides the practice here in, in coming? 
Yes, we do have a total of three offices. I'm in coming office, and we have one in Roswell, and also. Well, it, clearly, if you if you have a problem going on uh, around either C. difficile or any other infectious process, we can certainly say that uh, the folks here at the Infectious Disease Services of Georgia would be a great place to go. We've known them for a number of years. I want to say thanks to Dr. Dick and she's for sitting down with us, sharing his story, as well as some information about this relatively common infectious pathogen that we run into both in the hospital as well as walking about in the environment sometimes. So uh, I really appreciate you sharing some information that will hopefully educate some folks on what they might be dealing with and then what to, to expect should they have this to encounter for themselves or their loved one. Thank you very much and I enjoyed our session today. We'll have to have you back, talk about things like travel medicine considerations and a host of others because there's plenty of interesting things to talk about in the world of infectious disease, I'm sure. Well, I love doing infectious disease and talking about it is a lot of fun as well. So I appreciate it. <laughs> Here in Georgia, we've got a couple of mosquitoes running around, so I'm sure there's some mosquito-borne I, I would diseases. love the topic of mosquito-borne, and if you, even if you want to take the challenge after that of tick-borne infections, we could even do that. That sounds awesome. We look forward to sitting down with you and your colleagues again. Thanks so much, Dr. Dickensheets. We'll see you soon. You're welcome. And if you're listening to the podcast, and if you've not done so already, go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page. You'll see the Apple logo up there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store, to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast, and subscribe to us so that you can get downloaded to your device every week the latest episode, and you can stay up with all these healthcare experts that we're bringing to you. Pretty soon, we're going to be doing a discussion with a company that actually helps medical practices to develop self-funded plans that will defray some of the risk that they're exposed to, should they end up losing their incomes. Some great information on a host of different disease states. So make sure you get over there and subscribe to our podcast and keep up with all these cool folks that we're introducing to you every week. To everybody that took time to make us a part of their day today, whether by the live show or the podcast, I just want to say thank you very much. We really appreciate you. We respect the fact that you were sharing some of your time with us. And I hope that you can turn around and share this information with your networks on social media because you never know. You might just put some information in the hands of someone that you care about and you didn't even realize you were doing so. Everybody out there. We'll see you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 